Reef Therapy by Reef Builders is brought to you by ICP Analysis. What's in your water? What's going on everybody? This is Jake Adams coming to you from the Reef Builder Studio. We have a very, very special guest. Um, you know, we don't do guests very often uh, on Reef Therapy, but I'm very proud to welcome a very good old friend, Mr. Steve Wiest. How are you doing? You can shake my hand even though they won't see it. <laughs> Thank you, Jake, for having me. It's yeah. been really a pleasure to be invited to come and take a look at the studio and see what you have going on these days. Uh, yeah, no, I really want to thank you for coming out. You've, uh, your aquarium philosophy has, as you can see, been a you know, real big influence on the studio. And when I told people that you were coming to visit, they were like, he still has a tank. I thought he took it down. And so there's a lot of folks who remember who you are, who've been in the hobby industry for a long time. You're Pictures of your tank are still circulating everywhere. And uh, you, know, you and I stayed in touch, uh, you know, talking reef stuff, even when you didn't have a reef. And uh, just, I guess, you know, for a lot of our listeners who might not be familiar with your background and your history in the aquarium hobby, um, just you know, tell us how you, I guess, first made your, your, uh, your impact felt on the aquarium hobby in the form of your two aquariums featured on Oregon Reef com correct all right yep uh, first of all I have to give a shout out to a very good friend of mine his name is a Pierre artisan and he is the one who is actually responsible for starting OregonReef.com. I had no ambitions of creating a website but he insisted that uh, I created a website and um, I provided the content for him and he says I'll create a website for you and he did and it's still active to this day mostly because it auto renews and I haven't gotten around to stopping that yet, but uh, it's still alive today and surprisingly, it's still valid in today's world and in today's uh, aquarium hobby. So I've kind of left it up there. You know, when I pulled it up, just to refresh my memory of some of the stuff you had up on there, it was like nostalgia, just going back to that website. <laughs> but tell the listeners um, what are some of the things that they can see on that website, but really let's just talk about your tanks, right? You had. How big is your tank? Is it 1,000 something gallons? It was 850 gallons, and it was unique in that it was six feet by eight feet by 30 inches tall. And what I did on that was a little bit unusual than what most people would do, even really a public aquarium would do. I made the built-in main viewing wall the short side. So it was a viewable panel of six feet, but a depth that you look, feet, uh, look through of eight feet. So kind of like a peninsula that you only look at in the end. Correct. <laughs> and what made it unique was that orientation, but uh, not only that, but also uh, the aquascaping, which was also set into a form of a canyon and almost uh, with diverging walls on the side, which gave a perspective of even further depth. If you went around to the back wall and pulled off the panel and looked at it, you'd go, well, that's a lot shorter because now it's the opposite view, short going fat. So it actually had a forced perspective to even make that eight foot of depth seem a lot deeper. Uh, so before we dive into that tank a little bit, did you have aquariums before that? Do you have, to, did you have some experience with reef tanks before that? Prior to that, I had a smaller tank. It was 500 gallons that I first uh, set up and that would have been right around 2000. And um, it wasn't enough. It, it was <laughs> conventional. It was, I wanted something and I had the ability since this was inset into a garage and I was not constrained by space. I wanted to take that down and actually convert it every moved into the new tank and made that tank basically the same six foot viewing panel, but now almost three times as deep. 
going back. And that created all the difference in the world. That's what made it unique. So you created your 1,000-gallon tank in a very different, um, I guess, uh, environment of aquarium sophistication than we have today. A whole different subset of equipment, of techniques, of ideas. Um, besides, you know, the force perspective, I'm going to get into a little bit of the livestock of your, your classic reef tank. Um, what was some of the equipment that you used? Because this is before LEDs, maybe even before like propeller pumps kind of took off. Um, I don't even know if needle wheels were big enough for that kind of tank at the time. No. Uh, at that time, everything was geared obviously for smaller tanks, so everything had to be kind of upsized for that, uh, for this tank. So um, one thing was the lighting. Obviously, there's not going to be a light hood, a standard, anything for that size tank. So I had to get out the carpentry tools and make a light hood that would be sufficient for that entire tank. And if I remember right, I think it was 12 400 watt halides. It was eight VHOs and uh, mostly was using uh, a few 10K Ushios, a few 14K Phoenixes, and probably half of them was 20K radiums. That was our lighting choice at the time. You had five or 6,000 watts exactly. just in the halides. Exactly. Ooh, God, that must have been a hot tank. Uh, well, you, or, you know, just a lot of heat. Then you have a two horsepower chiller. Did you just, did you have one two horsepower or two ones? I used two. I know, I knew you weren't using one. Yeah. <laughs> I knew you're not using just one. <laughs> two of the same chillers. But what I did is I had them uh, offset uh, by um, uh, a temperature so I can, over the months, which one is the dominant chiller so they wear evenly over time. How did you know to do that? It's just, a point of failure if this chip because i generate so much heat and it can cook the tank in a heartbeat um i needed a redundancy that may be comfortable that if that chiller ceases operation for some reason um you know i had a backup also so you, so you may, have a kind of a non-destructive it's like a safe uh fail safe correct like a, a non-detrimental failsafe i guess yes. is what i'm trying to say and it also gave me the ability because those coils build up gunk on them over time it also gave me the ability to uh, take one offline without disturbing the tank and basically acid bath it on the inside clean it all out and put it back online all right so we've talked about the lights your classic lights your classic chillers what skimmer were you using it was, was this about 2003 2005 correct we're talking the low 2000s 2004 ish type thing uh, it was employing what at that time was state-of-the-art, and it was an external Deltec skimmer. It was basically a little mini R2-D2 sitting in the corner mm -hmm. that was surrounded by, uh, fed by, I think it was, uh, you know, like four Eheim 1262 pumps on them. Uh, and it did a great job. You know, it performed, it did, its, it's did the work, you know, but that was a state-of-the-art. That type of equipment for larger systems was just coming available uh, on the market for us. So now, so today, man, dosing pumps are everywhere. But I don't know that you did dosing for a tank like that. You must have had a calcium reactor. Correct. Also had a Deltec calcium reactor, and that's it. No calc, no dripping, no nope. dosing. Did you do any manual dosing of certain things? 
the product wasn't available. We didn't have that available. We relied upon the calcium reactors. So what we were doing at that time, or what I was doing at that time, is you know we were testing. I was testing for you know the usual pH, temperature, salinity, alkalinity, uh, nitrite, nitrate. But that's pretty much it. We really even the phosphate test. Gets yeah, even. yeah. ICP testing wasn't even like a blink on the horizon. It wasn't <laughs> even a glimmer in anyone's eye. No, not even close. No. All right. So what did you do for flow on your four by six foot tank? Floor flow <laughs> is it a huge challenge naturally because I wanted it to be predominantly SPS but it's still a a mixed reef so it had everything in there so there's no doubt about that but I had to hide the flow it is completely offensive for me to see any kind of power heads any kind of return jets wires hoses any of that anything of man I do not want to see in my display let the record show that I tried really hard to hide 98 95% of all the equipment inside my tanks, and he still gave me some, <laughs> some, some friction, some, you know, it let me know his displeasure of being able to see the overflow teeth on the, on the external drain boxes. I'm sorry to disappoint you, Sir Weiss, but I did my best. But yeah, I do appreciate um, almost an obsessive uh, attention to making your reef tank just totally unobtrusive. Like, I don't mind having a couple nozzles, but you've seen people pay zero attention to this. And it's like, it's like a Super Mario level inside your aquarium with all these pipes and hoses and nozzles everywhere. And it it's, can really detract from the aquarium. So what did you do? Or some of the, the techniques that you did to hide the flow? And then what was your flow provided by? Uh, my flow at that time, um, our big primary pumps were external pumps. Uh, I believe they're called like dolphin pumps. Yeah. They were the uh, amp masters. You know, they pulled one amp. They put out maybe three thousand gallons an hour type All flow. All AC pumps, DC pumps were still not even. Yeah, not a thing yet. Yeah. Not an option for us. Nor was any controllability of these pumps at all. We couldn't ramp them up or down or anything else. None so of you used dolphin pumps in a closed loop. In a closed loop. How many loops did you have? Four. One for each pump. And so those were delivering, those four, 3,000, and there was very little uh, uh, piping there for, to reduce that flow through friction losses through the piping. So I was getting a, probably a true 3,000, maybe slightly less. From each one? From each one. No nozzles. No nozzles. No eductors, no penductors. No, none no of those things. No trinkets or toys to adulterate the water flow. No. Just sheer volume and speed. Correct. And those nozzles were incorporated into the rock work, but completely obscured by the rock work from the viewing panel. If you were to go up and look at the reef from the top, put the light, slide the light hood over for accessibility, look down, oh, there's nozzle one, two, three, four. Or if you go from the back of the uh, unit and take off the rear viewing panel and look at it from the back from a maintenance access to clean the back panel or whatnot, it is a different aquarium. It is not show ready. That is not the point. Actually, I want to look at it and be able to visually check on things like that. It's just visually obscured from the viewing panel, but that doesn't mean not accessible. Um, how long did you have that tank running? Because I mean, uh, there was a, a, a good slice of time where that was kind of a pinnacle reef, and you know, that was everybody's inspiration. Um, everybody who kind of graduated up towards that level, and it inspired so many reef tanks for a long time. How long did you have that tank going? Uh, I believe I finally took it down. Um, I don't document the actual dates or anything else like that, but I'm going to guess somewhere around 2008-ish, 
somewhere around there and where I kind of uh, moved on a little bit from that part of the hobby and entered another segment of it into cold water reef keeping. So that's another thing I want to touch upon is um, there's some folks who keep cold water animals and by and large, I mean, it's mostly public institutions and you know researchers and, and people in the Pacific Northwest, but I think you're definitely unique in uh, kind of bringing in a lot of uh, reef philosophy to your cold water tank. And I know that inspired a whole wave of both cold water keeping and non-photosynthetic animal keeping. Tell us a little bit about your cold water tank. Uh, first of all, I live in the Pacific Northwest, Portland, Oregon, and we have some of the most incredible diving opportunities up in the Puget Sound area. Not so much off the Oregon coast because we're open, open water there, but uh, up in Puget Sound there are numerous fantastic dive sites. And when I dive those, I'm, I do scuba dive and I go up there, I see a world that is so completely different and alien compared to our tropical warm water reef keeping and nobody knows about it. Everybody's experience with a cold water tank is the lobster tank into the grocery store. They think it's bland, they think it's dull, they think it's great, and it's anything but. But it's hidden in the cold water world of those environments, and nobody knows about it. So I wanted to still create a system, although smaller, about half the size of the original, that showcased those animals and that life uh, still employing the same kind of um, artistic aquascaping uh, techniques that I employed on my larger warm water one. All right, so we're just going to give you a, um, a sneak peek. You know, I don't have Mr. Weiss here just to talk about the good old days because um, he's got a new tank set up that has got some of us in the know really, really excited to learn more. We're going to only touch upon that, but in the meantime, I want to really get your feedback. Um, so you took a long break. You know, I visited you in Portland once or twice, and you know, drank all my beer, yeah. <laughs> and you, your cold water tank was just in your garage, and you were just always looking for the right time to set it up. So you're in a holding pattern for ten years. About a decade, uh, between some personal and job and other things, I was kind of out of the hobby. Um, actively in the hobby. I never really left the hobby. You I was kind of kept the thumb on it. Periodically, like we never missed a year. Exactly, exactly. So it was about a decade, and I had my full cold water empty tank sitting there. Now, this tank was geared for cold water, so it's a little bit different in needs from water water, but certainly can be uh, modified slightly back to uh, create a warm water reef. So I got tired of seeing the empty tank just growing spiders in there. I had everything. I never got rid of everything. All I needed to do was add water and I could start up again. So COVID hit and I decided, what the heck? I'm just gonna go ahead and start up a reef again. And then I had to decide, what did I want to do? So before you get into that, what, what, did, what was your uh, impression of the aquarium hobby from the sidelines, right? You weren't really active on forums. You know, you and I probably stopped getting on bulletin boards at about the same time. But I know you were looking at stuff, probably picking up some magazines here and there, you know, seeing what was online. What was it like sort of being on the outside looking in? A 10-year gap in that hobby was enormous. When I came back, before I kept a kind of a cursory, oh, what does they, you know, peruse some of the message boards, what are they talking about these days? But when I fully came back and then really started deep diving, it was a different hobby for when I came back. 
priorities changed, tanks changed, equipment changed, everything changed. It was very different. Some things for the better, many things not for the better, at least in my opinion, and some of the things that are important for me in the tank. So that kind of pushed me actually into a direction of not going back to cold water and collecting my own stuff and whatnot. I go, I'm gonna go back to my roots and create a mixed reef tank and see if I can't recreate on a smaller, more conventional sized tank, maybe some inspiration that some of my old tanks garnered back in the day. When Steve says a mixed reef tank, that is not the mixed reef tank that we're literally recording next to at this moment. His reef tanks create like a variety of different eco zones and somehow you can prioritize the top space for your anemones and have acros just underneath. And I, I know that blows people's minds. You know, you got uh, bombies and ridderize and something you did in your old tank and in your current tank where they're at the top of the tank. And I know the reasons for it, but when you say a mixed reef, you have like little micro ecosystems and groupings of similar corals. It's, it's not what other people say when they say a mixed reef tank. You know, I'm pointing around to the tanks. That's a mixed reef, that's a mixed reef, that's a mixed reef. But a Steve Wiest mixed reef is a whole nother level. So, you, you know, we've gotten a lot more controllable with our pumps, um, a lot more smart features with lights, pumps, dosers, skimmers. And I know there's probably a lot of things you wished you could have done with your older tanks, but technology wasn't really practical to use at the time. Um, so what were some of the improvements you were looking to make uh, from your old tank to your new tank? Two main areas that I deemed were fantastic improvements from what I had available to me in the early 2000s as to what I had now. And the one, lighting. I no longer had to bake the tank with metal halides. I now could do it with lighting. You now could have controllability of that lighting for ramping up, ramping down, controlling the spectrum. All of those were completely unavailable to us in that time. Our idea of ramping up was turning off the halides and leaving the VHOs on. Pretty much, I think towards you know the end of the heydays of the metal halides there was a few controllable ballasts manual control there was a few ways to kind of control and ramp vhos down to like 50 or 20 percent but yeah it's not even close to the orchestra of spectral colors that we can do now it's like insane yeah so and flow yeah flow is the other main component that changed before i was limited to on and off and that was it now I can have programmability on flow generation in the tank to create different environments and really can create different environments really within the same tank with right. the controllability that we have now that was not available back then. Before we kind of take a slightly deeper dive in some of the, your thoughts on the current state of the reef requirement hobby, because I told people who know you that you were coming out, they all wanted to know your opinion. And I think you have, uh, uh, the freedom to really say it like it is in a way that even I don't have, uh, you know, as far as like you know, coming off cross grumpy or critical. Um, but before that, I just want to take a small detour because you have incredible experience with NPS corals, not only in your cold water aquarium, but within the zones of your reef tanks. It's, it's, <laughs> every time I see that, I'm like, I can't do that. I'm not even gonna try. I'm gonna put all my NPS corals in their own little tank where I can really feed them and then manage nutrients later. But you manage to put them 
together in specific areas in your tank. So give us some tips on NPS coral care, and by NPS, I mean stony corals, you know, tubastrea, dendrophilia, the likes, um, within a reef system. First of all, my cold water tank was the training ground for all of that. <clears throat> Since it was 100% non-photosynthetic, how much food does it take to keep these things going? How often does they need, do they really need to be fed to keep going? That was a huge learning curve that actually forced me to create a refrigerated, automatic dosing system to automatically feed it multiple, multiple times a day to keep things going. And a lot of it too is governed from my physical diving experiences, seeing what environment and what food was available. So now how that translates over into warm water. I can't uh, replicate that system in the uh, tropical tank because it's more of a target feeding issue on these. So I place my uh, dendros, and any NPS uh, stony corals, uh, tropical in there. I try to put them where I'd put them in there, have find them in their own environment. So we're talking shaded areas under uh, overhangs, maybe in a cave, off to the far left, off to the far right that can be shaded. Algae is the enemy of those type of uh, animals. They will get overrun with algae. A little bit of skeleton gets exposed, the algae will get on it and start it receding back. You've, that is the biggest enemy against those uh, animals. The other's feeding, and they like to come out at night, and, but we don't come out at night. So uh, they can be trained um, to come out in the daytime. I do mine by just stirring up the sand a little bit or putting a little uh, food in the water. That'll get them to come out, and then I target feed them. Target feeding them a variety of usually fresh, uh, could be mysis, could be scallop, could be you know crushed uh, LRS, could be a variety of ones, and they will gobble it down, and it works. So in, in your experience, uh, the stony NPS corals are not picky. No, they're, they're, the food size that they will accept is not really different than the rest of the tank will take. So you're not doing anything different. Yeah, if they were carnation corals or something like that, I'm not even gonna get involved with that. That would be an entirely different uh, system that you would I've need. tried and failed four or five times. <laughs> Everybody never, has. I never even made any Everybody progress. Everybody has. Sometimes I thought I'd make progress, but that's why I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm okay playing with some, you know, these stony corals. And exactly. you, you know, you and I went to a wholesaler, picked one up yesterday. Exactly. Um, Algae is really important to, to, to prevent, you know, just for the life of the coral. Um, I did notice that in your current tank and your older tanks, a lot of times you place the corals vertically. Is there any reason for that other than aesthetics? Does that prevent stuff like settling on them when you have a more vertical? It doesn't necessarily, it, I am placing it. First of all, when I set up the tanks, it's purely for aesthetics. That is the overriding priority of me is aesthetic. Everything else Functional aesthetics. Functional aesthetics. I then have to overcome problems to allow that <laughs> so aesthetic you, to come through. So, so in some ways you make it harder for you by where you place your corals and stuff? Because the aesthetics are so important to me. Right. It's, that shows. That and really shows. In, and in my current rendition, I wanted to do something a little different uh, because of the uh, aspect ratio of the tank and how it's working uh, in an aquascaping. So I went with more of a balmy pinnacle design. And that's vertical aquascaping in and of itself. Vertical aquascaping on pinnacles. I no longer have um, horizontal surfaces that I am um, planting corals on. I am dealing with vertical surfaces. All right. So now really getting kind of the, 
the meat of the discussion, and I'm going to let you talk uh, until you go too far off the deep end. Uh, but pe people who know you really want to know what you think about some of this stuff. So let's just get it out of the way, man. What do you think about the current state of corals? Of corals, you know, and that could be the sizes, what people, how people are, are viewing corals, the the kind of subjective names. I'm I'm just gonna let you go off. Go for, go for it, Steve. Okay, so we are now going to dive into old man yelling at clouds. Okay, uh, corals. It was a very different world back when I had my tank going in the mid-2000s. We were dealing, one, with the way we acquired corals. It used to be true colonies, reefer madness. Uh, our local fish stores were getting full shipments of corals. A little bit different than today's uh, environment. It was a huge variety. So much diversity of corals, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So definitely the diversity has changed a little bit from that aspect of it. But it seems like the focus of the hobby has now gotten a lot smaller. I am now dealing with people who must have 100 millimeter macro lenses and really good vision to see the individual polyp on these corals and that's what they're interested in. I have never been interested in that, ever, ever. I am interested in the overall display of the aquarium. It is an artistic representation of nature. It is not natural. I don't like it when people say my tank looks uh, natural. There's nothing natural about it. I've got corals from all over the world occupying a space that is 15 square feet. That is, you'll never find that in nature. It is an artistic representation of nature. So today's world has gotten away from that on their corals. And now we're looking at individual basically frags of corals and a frags of frags and what they sell now tiny little boogers i'm, I'm starting I to call those really really small I, I went boogers and then i went shards <laughs> and now i'm at genetic sample <laughs> and i don't understand it um it's it doesn't have to be that way there actually is quite a bit of availability out there uh not to have to go into that so I don't understand the pricing of it, and I don't understand, it's basically become a world of... <sighs> Pokemon. Pokemon, collect got, them all. Gotta collect them all. Gotta collect them all. And the macro lens size, nothing ever grows in anybody's tank anymore because it immediately gets fragged down. I have no understanding of that, and I have no interest in being persistent. I hold no interest in me to, uh, going down that road. But others do, and you know, people find enjoyment in the hobby. It's just not my cup of tea. I used to really rail against this mm, obsession of getting every single strain, but seeing different height bubbles for different groups of corals happen, which you saw it happen, right? Remember when the first frag of Sunset Monopora, $400. The first frag of Watermelon Alien Eye, $400. Each of those set off a massive kind of scavenger hunt for the next big chalice, for the next cool Monty. And we saw others rush in to kind of prospect these new and cool strains. And you and I have been doing this for a long time. I am happy to sit on the sidelines, let them you know, figure out what are the great strains, collect them, grow them to a point where you can't even, like a regular fish store, can't sell a big encrusted colony of Sunset Monopora. I'll come in there, I'll buy it. I'll buy the whole rock, no problem. So that's what I don't mind letting the collectors do that. And then later on, once the availability or the supply is caught up with the demand, I'm, I'm here to clean up. 
and I'm here to pick out you know the ones that have stood the test of time. You know, there's a million tenuous strains. You know, Walt Disney and the Home Wrecker, they're going to be around forever. They've you know proven themselves to be awesome corals. So I used to rail against that a lot, but there is a good silver lining to it. But on the flip side, because everyone's just got this collectoritis, they're not experiencing the extra levels and dimensions of coral growth. Like yesterday we were at Aquatic Art for a Chris Capps tank, looking at his three foot by two foot Jedi mind trick. And it's got like mountains and hills in the center with just all these polyps. And it looks so cool. And people are really missing that. Um, the extra layers of growth forms on their corals. Absolutely. And um, a, a perfect example of this kind of collect them all mentality going on today. Um, my local fish store recently brought in a large shipment of uh, tenuous, mariculture tenuouses. I said, how are you possibly going to move all those? They moved in a day and they were nothing to write home about, but they were a live tenuous. And then it dawned on me, people are buying these as spec corals, all looking for the next angry bird. They weren't growing it for their tank or anything else. This is somebody trying to find, they were basically panning for gold. Panning for gold, that's right. And th that really took me back going, okay, that's where a big segment of this hobby has moved to. It has moved away from the artistic representation of the tank and what a coral can be rather than what it is in its infancy. On the flip side, everyone's trying to get a piece of that weeping willow leather <laughs> coral, which is a brown sarcophyton, which is kind of cool. It's not that like they're going to find other varieties of it. So, you know, there's some appreciation for oddball, you know, brown leather corals, which really kind of surprises yeah. me. Um, but I, you did a really commendable job not being too cranky about the state of corals. I'm surprised. I guess we kind of got it out of our system yesterday a little Wait bit. Wait till we get to aquascaping. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, I'm going to save that one for a little bit later. Um, we'll do a TikTok, right? So like, you know, something that's a little grumpy and something that you might like yeah. better. So for the next one, the landscape of aquarium equipment has changed a lot. We are both, you know, simple reefers. We're both gearheads, but we like gear that we can really trust and that's going to provide a fundamental function. What are some of your favorite new reef toys? Uh, really, I only could come up with two that I think are incredible improvements, and we've already discussed that one lighting and one on pumps and flows, and that also includes, you know, pumps and flows for skimmers and associated thing. Uh, there's some interesting now um, advents coming along with the filter rolls and whatnot. I'm still a little old school and are mechanically filtering um, like I did kind of in the old days because it worked then and it Filter's works now. Not. Doesn't mean I wouldn't be open to moving something else, but I've never been. Uh, putting on gear for the sake of putting on gear. My tanks have always been very simply run. Anybody can come into and look at my system and immediately recognize what's going on and how it's all working and not having to follow the yellow brick road down the line. Where's this going? Where's this going? How's this running? It's so minimal plumbing. no colored PVC? No colored PVC. No crazy water level sensors all over the place? No automatic water testing? Well, it is a dollar float switch, so yeah. it's Float switch or float valve? Float valve, yeah. Okay. Um, and then, you know, do you use or enable some of the dynamic lighting that you use with your current lights? Oh, absolutely. Those are incredible improvements using what's available to now from a lighting, from changing the spectrum, from ramping it up and down to changing it on a dime. You want to photograph, let's change the lighting so it's maybe not visually appealing, but it can for our photography if we want to take a picture of something. Um, those are and all done from our phone. That's incredible. 
but um, to me that's where the advances are. Controllers, never been a fan of controllers. I still see minimal use for them other than monitoring. I do not believe in automation from that standpoint and it seems like the hobby has grown for automation for the sake of automation and I think they're actually putting themselves at risk. And there's a good portion of the hobby who's I think more interested in the equipment than they are in what they've created for their display. And I, I again, this is one of those things that I used to get really grumpy about. It was like, no, this is a way to do it. But I also recognize there are some people who have a reef tank to have all the toys on there. Like they're into the toys and the reef tank is just kind of a, a reason, just some, Absolutely. something to do. Absolutely, and that's um, evident. If you look on some of the, uh, the uh, message boards, I was on the uh, one on the other day and a tank that was similar to my size. Oh, let's take a look, see what he's doing. Because it's 50 pages long. I go, I'll just go to say 50 and see what it looks like. Turn to page 50, there's still not any water in the it's tank. It's like a year going, year and a half? How long is the bill? I lost patience at that point. I'm done. It's done with that one. I've been saying for the last few years that there's almost a, a negative correlation between how much equipment somebody puts on an aquarium and how nice the tank display actually looks. And your previous and current tanks kind of embody that, right? Because if somebody saw your tank, just uh, the, the display part, they would think that you would have such a complex, sophisticated system, you know, an equipment like overload. But you, you have lights, you have in-tank flow, through-tank flow, skimmer, and a little bit of monitoring. Anything else? No, and the, <laughs> the world has changed to, it used to be that we had that equipment to keep a tank, and I think a lot of people's focus now is they have a tank so they can have their equipment. <coughs> and that focus is on their equipment and not on their tank. My focus has always been on my tank, not my equipment. Um, one toy that I know you're going to love, it's not out yet, is the uh, automatic frozen fish food feeder. Ah. It's been developing for like two or three years. Um, I think it's going to be dropping like later this summer. It started as a, just like a cold storage carousel on top of your tank, which I, you would freaking hate. And now it's turned into kind of basically a dispenser that'll sit underneath your tank and it'll pump mm. food up to your tank. And it's going to be like $300. Hmm. It's really well thought out. No wireless functions or whatever. There's so a little touch screen. Able to defrost the food and dispense it, is what you're saying. Uh, it keeps it in a cold saltwater slurry mm, for up to thing. like three weeks or something. Mm. The way you feed, that's probably going to be about a week. Uh, <laughs> or an hour a and a half, yeah, exactly. <laughs> It'll probably be a week's worth. There's no doubt I overfeed. We all overfeed, but I'm, I'm the poster child. So, so you know, I know we're, we've got our ways of reefing, you know, and so you've got your fundamentals kind of locked in. Um, but are there some toys that you're kind of curious about? You mentioned the automatic filter roll a little bit. Correct. Uh, right now I'm still old school and I'm filtering kind of, you know, through a couple filter socks, you know, in the old running through some filter floss and of course skimmers and maybe a couple uh, intake sponges that you can take out and rinse off. Kind of a multifaceted approach that I did on my old tank. I even uh, stir up my sand once a week with a diatomaceous filter just hanging on the outside to really give it a good cleaning because, you know, sand is... Let's put a pin in that real quick. So, even though you're definitely an old-school reefer, you don't mind new-school versions of old-school products. Because no. you're using, a, you know, new lights, and you're using a new calcium reactor, correct? Absolutely. Uh, the latest calcium reactor I'm using, which is a Deltec Twin Tech, 
That is the best thing since sliced bread. I no longer am counting bubbles. I'm no longer checking effluent. I'm just dialing up how much is going in or how much I want to pull back. And I just need to monitor my alkalinity and let that thing just keep on running. I never touch it. Uh, maybe every six months, go ahead and break it down, clean it out, recharge it, start again. So, which I did actually just recently last month. It only took a few minutes, done deal, good for another six months. See you at Christmas time, you know. Out of personal curiosity, what uh, kind of media are you using in your Twintech? Uh, well, choices in our old day was the old arm and whatnot. So right now we're using uh, Julian's um, uh, Reborn. Seems to work pretty well without turning to mush, but also needing a high pH or a high, uh, a really low pH to, uh, to melt. So it seems to be working so far with using with the Reborn. Uh, that is one thing. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of choices out there, but uh, uh, just typical Reborn is working okay. for me. And it has some um, dolomite in there, also for magnesium. So one thing that was a really interesting is you know you see that none of my tanks are have a sand bed. Correct. Um, I wish I th could put sand in some of the tanks aesthetically, without paying the piper the cost and all of the the uh, the drawbacks of having a sand bed. And you know you you have to have a sand bed because aesthetics is super important to you. But you also recognize how much of a liability the sand bed is and you have a crazy like sand bed maintenance routine or approach. Tell us about like, how, what is your relationship to the substrate in your aquarium? Sand to me is one of the most important things in the tank visually. To create that artistic representation I want to create, it's got to have the sand. It's a visual break, it accents corals, what you're doing there, it's an important part of it. I've never been diving on a glass bottom. So I don't want to see that at all. So I want, need the sand in here, but I'm perfectly aware it comes with a boatload of baggage. And you really, really have to deal with it. Uh, if you don't, it's going to take you down. So the way I deal with it. Let's just, I don't know, let's just say that one more time. You have sand purely for aesthetics, and you believe that without proper precaution, it's going to bring down your tank. Yes. Explain. It is nothing but a nutrient sink that will release into the tank. It is possible a vector for ick and the ick life cycle. I overcome that with a crap load of UV. I do not have any ick in my tank, but I guarantee you ick is in my tank because I have sand. It is in there. I know it's in there, but I have to control it. So those are the things I have to change my uh, maintenance routine to uh, offset the negatives of sand. I stir my sand nearly every day, maybe three or four times a week, let's say. And so when I stir it up, it's not like the whole tank is cloudy because I do it so often. And just to clarify, you don't have sand in the back of the tank. I only have sand in visible areas. Remember, I'm creating an aquascape for my eye. If I can't see it, it's not going there. In fact, usually under and behind rocks, I'm putting flow to make sure nothing accum uh, accumulates back there. No detritus, no nothing can go back there. If you look at my tank from uh, up above, drop down, you will see glass bottom in areas that are not visible to the viewing panel. So what would you say to reefers who would say to you, oh, why don't you just have a big cleanup crew from your sand bed? You know, have some sand sifting gobies, some sand sifting starfish. Why don't you just do that? There is no better cleanup crew than yourself.
cleanup crews are fine. Snails can eat algae. Yes, they can, hermit crabs can run around and knock things over. Nothing can equate what you can do in minutes that they could do maybe in weeks and maybe not to the extent. You can put all the sand sifting gobies you have in there. You are the best, you are the best cleanup crew. It's kind of a hope and a prayer when people put a just small amount of sand sifting starfish and some nosarius and think that they're gonna have that real um, reliable turnover of the sand bed. No, it's just ridiculous. All that is an excuse not to, to, put, to do it yourself. You're being lazy and if that is something you can't do, you shouldn't have the sand in the first place. Go bare bottom and go flow and change what's important to you. For me, it's visual artistic representation of the tank and I am going to do everything I can do to solve the negatives of it. But if I weren't doing that, if I say, I can't do this every day, I can't do that sand, that sand's going to get vacuumed out because its negative aspects will take everything down eventually. Um, <clears throat> I feel like this is just a really refreshing to hear from someone who's just so uh, visually uh, driven, you know, when it comes to reef tanks, that you, you know, you have your sand bed, but you also know the, the costs and the drawbacks associated with that. So that's Absolutely. a really refreshing point of view. You still want to do your sand bed, but like sand sifting automation, even if it's biological, it's just, it's nothing compared to just doing it manually. Um, so how, how do you stir your sand bed? A base stir? Do you have one of those three printed sand stirrers? No. <laughs> Uh, I just have an old-fashioned Kent scraper. I go down there, or I just reach down to the bottom of my hand. And once a week, I really get down there with my hand and fluff up all the sand. And you keep nothing on the sand bed. That's another thing that, that kind of, like, I have to pay attention to when I'm looking at pictures of your tank. You know, I audition a bunch of corals in the bottom of my tank, but a lot of people keep a lot of animals on their sand bed. Your sand bed is sand. That is what it's for. Correct. And if I come in and I see a tank with a bunch of soldier rows of frags and clams and everything sitting on the sand bed. Uh, to me, it just, I have a whole different opinion of the whole tank immediately. I can't stop looking at it. It just is a <laughs> negative, it is a big zit on the Mona Lisa. I can't tolerate it. I don't see that when I go diving. When I go and look at Maxima clams in the South Pacific, they're buried into the rock. They're not lined up as soldier rows on the sand. Same with frags. You'd never see a frag rack. I'm not a frag farmer. All those things is basically visual pollution to me. That, yeah, no, it's really nice. Uh, I, it's interesting. This is a you know audio format, so no one can see your aquarium. Definitely go to OregonReef.com and you know see some of the concepts that we're talking about. But now that we're touching on aesthetics, I feel like there's a lot of uh, lip service being paid to aquascaping, aquascaping. A lot of people talking about it and people coming up with really, uh, you know, dramatic rockscapes. Um, but then when it's time to put the corals on there, that's a very low, I guess, success rate at a, achieving, you know, something that even gets close to what the freshwater guys are doing. So now this is the biggest can of worms. <laughs> We're letting basically the judge of judges uh, tell us what he thinks about the current state of aquascaping of the reef hobby and go. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I would say that this is probably was the most shocking change for me, basically taking hiatus for 10 years. When I left the hobby, uh, the term negative space aquascaping was actually an important term. A couple of uh, good friends of mine, Paul Whitley and Scott Feldman, actually gave pretty good MACNA representations on 
the use of negative space aquascaping. And back then, what that meant was not having a rock wall, allowing the eye to rest, maybe using uh, composition themes like the rule of thirds in how you present your tank, not filling up every space. And a, and a clean sand bed helps with that. And a clean sand bed not only gives you that visual break, you know, it also about, uh, reflects some light, maybe give you a little bit more uh, brightness and lighting that the eye appreciates. And that's when I left the kind of the hobby we were moving towards. And then I come back into the hobby 10 years later. When was this? Well, just recently, a year ago. My current tank has been set up for now for about 14 months. So we're talking, you know, setting it up late 2020 is when I was putting water in my tank. December of 2020 is when I was filling up my uh, tank again. And I come back and I see threads on negative space aquascaping. And I click on it and I look at it and expecting to see kind of where it has moved. And the whole really important artistic concepts of negative space aquascaping that we had back in the early 2000s has now been completely hijacked to refer to small rocks being glued together in the shape of balloon animals. I don't understand it at all. You take those uh, now uh, granted artistic little creations in there that are not representative really of anything in nature and all you do is unless you just have something encrusted on it like zoos or something you're going to lose all of that detail immediately when anything grows provides no cover for the fish um, to me it's a it's, it's a poor now everybody has their cup of tea and all but for me it's a it's visually it's distracting and not I interesting have seen at all. a lot more of these balloon animal shaped rock trees than I have actually seen aquascapes using or, you know like live and functional with corals on them I, I, I've only seen a, like a handful that were covered with corals and they weren't matured out, but it wasn't a great look to start. Yeah. And that has actually transitioned over away from, let's just call them the balloon animals things, into little other aspects. Uh, I was perusing, it was an international site not too long ago, it might have been a New Zealand site I was looking at, but anyway, there was a typical um, start of a thread and it was the, uh, this guy had a 60 gallon cube. You know, very typical thing there, and he's saying, okay, this is my first start, you know, shot at aquascaping the tank, what do you think? I'm trying to uh, employ some of the negative space aquascaping. I go, okay, this is interesting, let's click on it and see what it is there. And he had his tank there. And what he had on there is a couple rocks on the left piled on top of each other, and one big rock on the right. And then he had uh, what is now kind of the flat shelf rock plates sitting on top. And I was looking at it and going, okay, now, now I want to read the comments. And here come the comments, which the message board's a little bit of an echo chamber. The old nice tank, good start, lots of space for the coral. And I'm thinking, not a good start, not nice at all. It's basically an homage to, well, Stonehenge. It looks like Stonehenge. What are you doing? That is awful. Why aren't people giving them a little bit more uh, artistic um, suggestions going through. If I were offering that, I, and we had to use those same rocks that he was using, I would have taken the flat rock, I would have put it on the base, I would have taken his uh, substrate, softened the edges, piled on, uh, made a little column on the right, as into the rule of thirds, shifted over to the right, and that would be an artistic pleasing and provide you enough ample space to put on corals and everything else uh, grow, rather than Stonehenge. I recently had my own uh, kind of epiphany about aquascaping with rock. 
and it kind of blew my mind just after the fact. Um, everybody's using the same kind of rock, one kind of rock, right? And it's funny, you know, you just look at the old pages. We had the regular, you know, Bukani rock, real nice and porous. Then, you know, you'd have some actual branch rock and some shelf rock. But these are made by different corals, and it really introduced a degree of heterogeneity to the aquarium. But I'll tell you what, man, when you just use only Caribsea or only real reef or only cornerstone or only maraca, you get only one kind of look. Or if you only use one kind of Marco. Very true. And so we haven't really had a chance to look at the 400 yet, but I used three types of rock. And as soon as I backed out and there's different colors, textures, shapes, I'm like, oh my God, this is way more natural looking just out the gate. And so that's one thing I really hope people will consider more with their aquascapes. It's like, don't get one type of rock. Yes, I know the manufacturer wants you to buy a single 50 or 60 pound box at a time, but when you mix and match these rocks, all right, there might be a little... Um, disconnect between some of them but that's actually so much more natural because a natural reef wild reef is made by all different kinds of coral so when you use the same kind of rock it's like showing me a reef that's built only with one kind of coral and that's the exception not the rule you're absolutely right and my current system utilizes what, three or four different types of rock all right this is uh, this question's for keith even though he didn't doesn't know he asked it um did you use wild rock did you use live rock did you use dry rock what, did you, what was your rocks, rock recipe? So again, I'm going for the visual artistic representation and I need to create bombies. So, and I also need to hide plumbing and everything that I normally do on there. So I used it all basically. So uh, I have Puget Sound rock that is left over from my uh, cold water system, which were basically huge basalt, solid, non-porous boulders, but the shapes were really interesting and I utilized those. And I also put in uh, a few shelf rocks that I used to create some vertical spaces on the end of it. And I used a little KP Aquatic uh, live rock to kind of seed the tank and create some uh, little different textures. And I used a little bit of dry rock. So it has a combination of all of them, all in the goal of creating uh, an interesting rock space uh, in the aquarium is all from an artistic standpoint and that's what differs a little bit that I do that most people don't. If I'm creating a tank it's gonna look good day one and that means a lot of rock but that doesn't mean it's gonna stay a lot of rock. As new coral, as corals grow, as there's new acquisitions, corals go in, rock comes out. I've recently been, now that the tank is over a year old and corals are growing in, Time to start kind of re-aquascaping a little bit. Out comes rock, corals are changing and becoming more dominant. But I'm not gonna look at a tank that, wow, this tank's gonna look really good three years from now. That is not me. It's gonna look good today. And all I have to deal with is rock, you but it will be, change. You'd be so good at aquarium service. Not taking care of other people's tanks, but just like setting out the vision, making it look awesome from day one. And, but, but, the, but what you are proposing is, is, is very hands-on, you know, right. it's something that you have to massage and manicure as the tank progresses. And before you touch on that, your rocks have a lot of, your, your rockscape has a lot of verticality. Correct. Right? It's got, it, without being a rock wall. Correct. Without being a stack. Correct. You know, do you, do you use any kind of like pegs or stakes or mortar to kind of keep things together or epoxy? Like, or do you just, uh, you know, kind of secure fit? I use the base of, basically it has three major 
pinnacle columns in there. And I used my Puget Sound Rock, which was so heavy. It, once you get it uh, in there, it won't budge. And before I put it in, I basically took my concrete saw, cut off the bottom flat so it sits completely flat on the bottom. So there's no movement, there's no chance of falling, there's no nothing. And now I build upon those. And I do use epoxy. Uh, I'll mix epoxy and then mix it with a little cyanoracrylate. And that works great, especially on rocks that have little crevices that you can squeeze the epoxy into and let it cure. And it works just fine. And it also gives you the ability to break it apart later if you want, which is what I yeah, do to remove. Yeah, it's not forever, right? Exactly. So you can always just do some exactly. demolition a little so bit. So a lot of folks, and I don't understand this, but you know, a lot of the aquascaping these days are, wow, you know, that's great. You have a lot of room for things to grow in, into. And it's like, I don't understand that. Why are we setting up something now that isn't going to look good for three years from now? Or why people have the fear of taking their rockery and rockscape close to or maybe even breaching the surface. Go diving, you see that all the time. Why are we stuck with rock that, oh, it can only be one-third of the height of the tank? No, it doesn't. Take it up to the top. Have it sticking out of the tank. Are there any um, kind of fundamental points you want to touch upon uh, the current state of the reef aquarium hobby before we tease them about your tank a little bit? Um, I will say that the hobby has diversified into niches within the hobby that we didn't have years ago. Niches within niches. It really mm -hmm. reminds me of freshwater, where if you're into cichlids, that doesn't mean you're into the same cichlids as the other guy, right? Exactly. You know, even if you're into African cichlids, you might be segmented based on Malawi and Tanganyika. If you keep angelfish, you're not necessarily talking to the discus keepers. And now we're seeing some of that mm -hmm. with zoanthids, LPS, euphilia, even acros. Some people, you know, really do the collector stuff. Some people do. The, the corals that grow in the nice colonies. Um, so yeah, definitely notice that. Definitely different aspects of it and more power to them. If that's what you enjoy in the hobby, that's fine. Everything that I enjoy in the hobby, which is based on, again, artistic representation of the, the whole display, is not even relevant to the frag farmer, the frag guy, who's more interested in just looking at individual corals. Sand is irrelevant. You'd never put sand in a frag tank. Um, it's completely irrelevant. They're fine looking at the small individual corals. Great. If that's what you get out of the hobby, that's fine. If you like having your apex being able to basically do your laundry, uh, fine. More power to you. Um, your tank may suffer, but maybe that's not important to you. One thing that's super awesome about your current reef tank is that without, with just a few exceptions, everything in there are fish and corals that have been available for decades, right? There's, there's nothing designer in your tank that is used as a crutch. You're really painting with colors and, and shapes and contrast, but there's nothing wild about it. I know you got some green goblin and acro, that's a kind of a new, one of the newer strains, but like everything else is, is super classic. But what are some of the newer corals or even strains, or what are some of the things that have caught your eye? Okay, well, first off, that concept has never changed me. Even back in the day, there was nothing, nothing uh, unusual about or designer about my old aquarium. It was uh, Bali green slimers and Oregon tord and you know just ordinary corals that we have. What was different is how I placed them together. I used uh, complementary colors, textures, shapes, growth patterns to create that artistic design that appeals to the human eye. And that's still moving forward today. So it's still fill, filled with corals that are really important to me via either shape, texture, uh, color, uh, growth patterns, everything, and how they interplay with one another. 
If you have, uh, I have a perfect example where I came across a, uh, I was able to buy from a tank breakdown, uh, a nice uh, mica stylo. And I said, where am I going to put this? I go, oh, my green slimer really needs a backdrop. Purple and green together really play off each other. So I created a spot specifically for it, right behind a now becoming a healthy, good-sized colony of green slimer. And they play off each other and complement each other. So what I'm always looking for in corals is interesting colors, textures, and like you mentioned, the anacopora, one of fast-growing coral, but that bright green color pop to help offset reds and blues and oranges um, really come into play in creating that artistic vision. Any other corals that you've seen out in the, you know, maybe in, th in their webs that you're interested in adding to your collection? Um, a lot of it these days is focused on, again, the uh, individual polyp color tenuouses and how that's going. And if I have to use a magnifying glass to see it, I have no interest in it. I want to see when it's actually a colony that I can see walking past the aquarium. So uh, I've always been interested in, you know, the staghorns and um, some of those type things. And LPS. I have a lot of LPS. I never was into scholemia. They looked like basically a doorknob collection to me. I mean... But you have a few clusters in but your But I tank. have them and I've become converted on them because I found a purpose for them. They are the perfect little color spot you can put in that dark corner to help give a little color pop and interest in there and the variation of colors in them are really interesting without having to get out a magnifying glass. So I've been converted on those and I actually have five or six in there. Uh, specifically spot in there, it's like, that's a good spot for a sclemia. Now I need to find one and it kind of needs to be predominantly green because I have too much red around it. Let me now go hunting for a green sclemia. So, and w we all like to shop and whatnot, but I always have to, when I look for a coral and shop for a coral, always have to take into account where am I going to put it, how will it look, uh, what its, what its uh, requirements are. It's like, wow, you know, I, my only spot I have is a high flow and I need something green. Okay, I better be looking for a humulus or a gemficera, you know, something like that. Um, so you take into account all of the coral needs under the overriding umbrella of how's it all going to look in the end. Man, this has been such an awesome uh, discussion with you. Uh, it's really cool to get your feedback and to indoctrinate a new generation with some of these classical ideas. Because that's the thing, there's a lot of experimentation with corals, with equipment, with NSAs. And I, I have faith that, you know, some people will keep going down those, you know, alleys and those rabbit holes, but all taken all together collectively, I think it will empower uh, you know, f current and future generations of reefers to create even better and nicer displays. Um, I'm just, I'm still kind of flabbergasted that your current reef tank, it's, it's there's something about it. There's a touch, there's a signature that you have that really, res it looks like the little brother of your older tank. And I can't wait to go out to Oregon and uh, see your tank and maybe do another podcast with you, another session of reef therapy, really just diving into your tank with some accompanying videos. But um, can you give people just a little taste of what you know they might expect on a future update about your aquarium, equipment-wise, aquascape-wise, coral-wise? Um, this one, like I said, employs, uh, it's more conventionally shaped, first of all. This is not uh, like it was before, eight feet by six feet, a monster tank. It's about 400 gallons. Uh, measures about 86, 36, and then 30 inches high. And I like to call it a semi-peninsula, only because all of the uh, overflow and all is all at one end of the aquarium and it's viewable on two sides. 
and it employs a lot of the same techniques. You will not see a single powerhead. You will not see a return jet. You will not see a wire. You will not see a frag rack. You will not see soldier rows on the sand. All the same things employed on there, they're applicable in this tank. And it's employing more of a vertical aquascaping rather than rock on the ground. So there's a lot of open space on the sand bed for fish to swim around through. And the rock work still has tunnels, caves, accesses. Uh, also for flow to get through and around and for access for cleaning and monitoring. They serve dual purposes. Um, and probably most importantly to me, a absolutely clean tank on the glass. And that's all sides of the glass. You will not see a speck of coralline algae or any other algae on there because, I mean, even today's world of uh, the coral online reefers, they found the value of putting a black background against their corals to show it off to sell it. Really no, diff yeah. no different than our tanks. I am not going to have a coralline filled back. That's lazy. It's a terrible background. I'm over here. We're literally sitting in front of my tanks, which are coralline covered black backgrounds. They look mostly dark. You know, they're not overgrown, but now I'm ashamed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So to me, it's I clean it and I kept the aquascaping off of the glass to make it easily acceptable with just a mop. Just takes me a second to mop it down with my little Ken scraper and call it good and keep it under control. I never let it get out of hand because it's so important to offset and accentuate all the uh, corals that you're growing in your tank. All right, so one last thing, man. We cannot have the sit down without you telling people how you're using an Ecotech Marine Vectra pumps as freaking powerheads. <laughs> and then you, but you don't see them. So it's, they are like powerheads. They're kind of like an internal loop. So it's not even a closed loop, but it's kind of the same thing. Describe how you're using your Vectra okay. pumps inside your tank. Okay. So, like I said before, think of this tank. It's hard to do, obviously, in an audio format. Think of it as a peninsula tank. And a typical peninsula tank has its overflow on the short opposite end. And that's where people are trying and struggling to get flow around. When you have that overflow on that side, generally on most tanks, like you even have here in the studio, you create a space on either side of that overflow, like a little alcove. Well, to me, that's wasted space. When I had this tank built for my cold water aquarium, because it employed the same technique, um, those alcoves were actually walled off by a kind of, let's say, a coast-to-coast -coast wall. The overflow is still set in the center, but now I have two basically boxes on either side of them. I then put, had a big intake screen put in the bottom of it and above it an outflow. So in there, I now can put very large, let's just call them power heads, even though they're pumps. I'm using them as a power head. And there's no piping or anything else on it. That whole vector just sits in the box there. It's outflow, take off the uh, uh, union fitting, just stick it out the hole there, which is on the tank side completely obscured by rock work and holes through the rock work that it jets, uh, jets the water out through. And uh, that allows me also to gimbal it left, right, up, down. And I generally, I have three of them that are pro providing that completely hidden flow because it's not, not viewable at all from the tank. And my flow, a lot of people on the peninsulas are going for more circular flow, left, right. Mine doesn't, mine's up, down, up, down. So my circulation is real high to the top, especially for my high flow things that I want. Ritteri anemone, Gigantian anemone, SPS, 
those guys are in really high choppy flow. Water hits that back wall, circulates back around, sucks back down around back to those intake pumps and it keeps going and going and going. No and nozzles, conductors, no, RFGs, just no. a pure nozzle. Just a pure, take off the, compre the union fitting off the end of the Vectra and stick it in the hole. Oh man, that and is... you, Jake saw a couple pictures of the flow and it's actually quite a bit of flow and I'm not even running them at 100%. And I put them on a closed loop on a Mobius and put them on a reef crest. So they're closed loop setting. setting closed loop setting so that they are modulating their flow and three of them are independent and when they get in sync sometimes it can be quite the little flow going through there or kind of quiet if they ever get synced together on the low flow so it's a random flow gener being generated in there and it is significant in there to keep all these different animals steve i'm so glad that you're here thank you so much for uh, sitting down with us and just um, giving some fresh perspective to the listeners you know i know the reef therapy audience is is a very engaged one you know they're really here to learn and i really appreciate you just kind of uh offering some kind of new ideas and some new approaches to things um so yeah man thanks for coming out yeah i'll come out to oregon in a few months yeah and looking check out forward to it i think you'll uh, maybe see something different and something that's uh, not being addressed or done so yeah and uh yeah man we'll uh we'll catch you on the next one yeah. thanks to everybody for listening i hope you enjoyed this uh power-packed shorter session of reef therapy and we'll catch you guys on another one very soon